Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, while you were doing the intro, I was cavorting with your wife. <laughs> That's impressive. It's a, someone who doesn't exist that you have been, uh, I think maybe you need a mental health check there, Jason, because you're hallucinating people to cavort with. If, uh, if this is the only reason I needed a mental health check, I'd be in much better shape than a, <laughs> All than right, I have most then. of the time. <laughs> well, we'll set that aside for the moment. And uh, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we have been talking about the films of 1939, and uh, we're here for some cavorting in our foreign film pick. It is Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game, the classic French film, which was not necessarily an obvious classic when it was released. It's interesting to see the sort of journey of this film to becoming what is often acknowledged as one of the greatest films ever made. Yes, Josh. Steve Perry, the original lead singer of Journey, but as you know, multiple replacements since then. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I was referring to. <laughs> mm. So, uh, Jean Renoir at the time was uh, a major figure in French film. He His previous films had been very, very successful. This was a highly anticipated film that he was making. Um, it was at the time the most expensive French movie ever made. Its budget eventually sort of ballooned after reshoots and, and other things to 5.5 million francs, which is, um, like a lot of dollars probably. I didn't do the math good, on that. Good work, Josh. It's good hard because you got to look at inflation <laughs> plus the exchange rate. And anyway, the point is it was more than, than any other French film had been and, and I think, you know, it seems like one of the reasons why this was considered such a failure at the time that it was released was that it was so highly anticipated and it, you know, became this huge expensive thing. And then people were so disappointed in it that it was a huge loss, I guess. You know, it's, it's like now when we, we have, you know, if Avatar, well, I don't know if I want to compare this to Avatar, but, you know, something like that where people think, oh, this is the next great thing from this hugely popular filmmaker. And then just it doesn't connect with anybody is what seems like what happened at first here with this film. Oh, when you just said that, I was sleeping with your knobby wife. Ha ha. Rules of the game do twice, bro. OK, <laughs> no. So look, Renoir, a huge star, right? This costs a lot of money. Um, but it was actually banned in France in 1939 for being depressing, morbid, immoral and having an undesirable influence over the young. So you got to remember, it's 1939. It's right before the Nazis came in, right? Renoir knows the war is coming. And I think a lot of it from what I was reading is like, hey, why don't we like this? Because he painted a portrait of us so accurately and showed how disgusting we are, right? You know, this bourgeois, this upper crust class. And um, it wasn't until the 1959 Venice Film Festival where it became, where it was reassessed and recut the way it should have been. And um, since then, it's uh, gone down as one of the all-timers. Right. And although even before then, it's interesting because, as you're saying, it was cut down. I mean, in part because it had such a disastrous response that Renoir seemed to have, you know, maybe some self-doubt about this film, including his own performance as Octave, 
which was a last minute replacement that he stepped in for his brother uh, to play this part because of scheduling issues. And then the producers of the film also were displeased. So they kept cutting it down. It was 113 minutes when it was initially released and it eventually got cut down to 85 minutes. And, you know, it seemed like no one liked it, no matter how much he cut out of it, but he certainly didn't improve it by making it shorter. Um, so you're right that it was, it was definitely, it was banned and it was unfortunate that it was released right before the war broke out, but it seemed like people just didn't like it anyway. Um, even the ban aside at first, uh, in 1956 film enthusiast, Jean Gabari and Jacques Maréchal founded the Société des Grands Films Classiques. Josh, I'm on fire with the French right you, now. You're really, you're really butchering oh. it expertly wow. there. A film restoration company focused on neglected film. The Rules of the Game was one of the company's early restorations, and um, they got the rights to the film. They discovered 224 boxes um, that had been found at the bombed GM film lab. And these boxes included negative prints, duplicate prints, and sound mixes of the film. So with Renoir, they were able to reassemble, recut, and put together uh, most of the original version, a 106-minute version, which is what I think we saw. Yeah. And that was the version that uh, went to Venice. And people woke up and were like, oh, yeah, this movie is awesome. Well, what's interesting to me is that, that that's all true. And that's the version that we all watch now and the version that Renoir approved and the version that people really liked when they saw it at Venice. And then it was later given a wider release. But before that, in 1952, when the only version really that people saw was that shortened 85 minute version, this still made the top 10 of the first ever sight and sound poll. So even then people had reassessed it even in that truncated version. Yeah, but those cucks over at Sight and Sound have dropped it to 13 in the latest poll, Josh. Right. But I, I'm just saying, I think that, you know, that that reassessment had begun even before the movie was fully restored. So, Josh, to uh, kind of further illustrate a point I was making, here's a quote from Renoir. It is a war film, and yet there is no reference to the war. A reconstructed documentary, a documentary on the condition of a society at a given moment. And I think a lot of it was. You have to figure like, you know, the the upper class people that this is poking fun at didn't really seem to care to be poked fun of at the moment. Right. Although, honestly, watching maybe it's just a contemporary perspective, but it seems pretty mild the way that they are poking fun. I mean, in, in, until maybe the end when it gets dark with the shooting that uh, maybe we'll talk more about later. But otherwise, it's just, oh, these people are kind of frivolous and they're all having affairs with each other. Uh, but it's it's light and it's funny. I mean, and it's meant to be funny, not only in a satirical way, but in just kind of like a slapstick way, too. So I don't know. It, it seemed like um, an overreaction to me. Well, I would agree with that. It's it's a great movie and um, it is very funny. Yeah. So interestingly, if you look at critical response from the time that it was released, it is it is mostly negative. And uh, as is often the case with these older foreign films, as I think has happened with us a few times before, of course, the movie in any form didn't make it to the United States for quite a while. Although Variety did review it in 1939, presumably seen uh, by a critic that they had in France or something like that. So in 1939, reviewing that 85-minute version, Variety said, the rules of the game is one of those controversial picks 
bound to elicit much comment, but definitely lacking in marquee strength. It's advertised as a comic film, quote, called upon to open new horizons for the French cinema, taking its inspiration from a new school. As an experiment, it's interesting, but Jean Renoir, who directs, wrote the scenario and dialogue, and takes a leading role, has made a common error. He attempts to crowd too many ideas into 80 minutes of film fare, resulting in confusion. Also weak is Nora Gregor, the former Princess Starhemberg, whose accent is far from pleasing and her acting stilted. You know, I honestly think those are fair assessments. I Obviously, I love this movie, but I've seen the Renoir cut, not the 84-minute cut, right? So or the 85-minute right. cut. So I can see there are so many characters to keep track of here. You need that breathing room, you know? So I could see why that would be um, an issue for reviewers back then. Uh, as for the actress, uh, Nora Gregor, she didn't bother me. Yeah, and that's a, I think her her performance still is is often held up for criticism, even I looking on like Letterboxd and stuff now. And I, I, I guess maybe she's not as charismatic as some of the others, and that's a problem when the like the idea of her character is that all these men are after her and she's like irresistible or whatever. But I didn't think she was necessarily bad. And you know, in terms of being stilted, right, she's meant to be an Austrian. I mean, and she is Austrian. Uh, speaking French. And so that awkwardness is kind of part of the character that gives her that that sort of outsider element. And and so I thought that was fine. But yeah, even even this 106 minute version, I felt like even later in the film, there were moments where I was like, who was that person? So it is a lot of characters and incidents to cram into even the longer version. I mean, this isn't the first time we've dealt with this this season. We kind of talked about that with the women, with all those characters to keep track of. And I, I know this sounds like so silly, but the fact that it's in black and white makes it harder. I, I mean, I suppose you're right. And, and something that you said about the women, which, of course, we we disagreed on generally. But, you know, you can differentiate characters in movies that are, have a lot of characters often with their style. Oh, this person dresses this way or has this kind of hairstyle. And if it's in black and white, there's less of a chance to differentiate their clothing. And, of course, at a time when people all kind of dressed the same. All the men are going to wear the same exact outfit. You know, that's just the way it was back then. So I think that's fair. So Renoir, um, from what I was reading, Josh, you know, he was out at the theater one night with his wife and they came upon Gregor and her, I guess he was like a Duke or something, her husband. And like, he immediately fell for her and decided I must cast her in the film. And then he like fell in love with her in that regard. And then, um, during filming, he left his wife, but fell out of love with Gregor because he wasn't thrilled with her performance. And then I think ended up marrying his babysitters, uh, the kid's baby, the kid's nanny or something like that. Yeah, so. that sounds about right for uh, the film industry. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, one byproduct of that, again, just according to that same Wikipedia, I think that I read is that he started like expanding the roles for some of the other characters which I think is good because it makes it more of an ensemble piece and not just focused on Nora Gregor's character and the men who are infatuated with her. And I think it's better for having that range of characters and storylines, even if it's sometimes hard to keep track of. And, you know, to go back to some of like our Christopher Guest discussions on here, this was like a third scripted and then detailed like in outline form beyond that. But there was a lot of improv. 
Right, which was a, one of the reasons I I think that it went so far over budget because they're redoing and rewriting scenes and storylines as they're shooting, which of course adds time to the shooting schedule. So this film did eventually open in New York City in that uh, shortened version again in 1950. So in 1950, Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, here we have a baffling mixture of stale sophistication coy symbolism, and galloping slapstick that almost defies analysis. The distributors claim that the picture, made shortly before the war, was banned by the occupation on grounds of immorality. Rest assured it wasn't immorality. And there's nothing particularly sizzling in this account of some addle-headed lounge lizards tangling up their amours on a weekend house party in the country. If the game is supposed to be life, love, or hide-and-seek, which makes more sense, it's Renoir's own secret. At any rate, the master has dealt his admirers a pointless, thudding punch below the belt. To you, Crowder. How about yeah. that? Mm. Um, I was actually thinking about this because, like, you know, the opening scenes um, with kind of Christine and her servant, uh, I guess, or what would you her call her? maid, I think you her would call maid. her. She's a lady's maid, right? Yeah, but I mean, she's basically like a uh, dedicated servant to her. And well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what a, la- willing... what a lady's maid was. You know, you haven't watched yeah. enough Downton Abbey, Jason. To, you know, <laughs> Clearly, I haven't. <laughs> but, you know, they're talking about like, do you have lovers? Oh, oh, how are your lovers in comparison to your husband? Like, they're so open about all this. And I thought that was like really uh, impressive considering the time period. Like, no one's going behind each other's back. They all know about each other's affairs. Everyone's just trying to uh, have sex with everyone. It's very, uh, you know, sexually forward uh, moving in the uh, in the swinging 30s there, Josh. Right. Well, I mean, as we talk about with all the American films that we're that we have covered and will cover, the Hayes Code was constraining what you could do in a Hollywood film at this time. But that's not the case in other countries. And so they're able to be frank about that in this movie in a way that uh, a Hollywood movie would not at all have been able to do in 1939. And, you know, the French are, are known for, for their affairs and all that. So that kind of fits with it. But on the other hand, I mean, I agree with you. I appreciate how sexually free it is. But as this kind of satire, right, you have to wonder is that the, the, the sexual freeness of it is something maybe that Renoir is critiquing as morally bankrupt. I uh, definitely don't think he's doing that. He participated in it, I think, as well. Maybe he's commenting on that uh, from a participant standpoint. Right. Yeah. I mean, he could be, it could be a self critique as well. But I mean, I think it goes along with the whole decadence of the rich here. That's the, the, the larger theme of this film. I agree with that. And um, I think that's part of the brilliance of it is that even in the beginning, they know they're on the verge of war. I mean, that's all there and like the kind of, um, uh, title card stuff right uh, right before the story starts and like because they never mentioned the war and they go about these dalliances um, I think it adds like almost an extra layer of uh, just kind of sadness and surrealism to the whole thing yeah I mean and and making Christine Austrian which was only done because of the casting of Nora Gregor obviously that adds a layer to it as well in terms of the war because Here's someone who has left Austria and is now in France. And, you know, people would have been fleeing from the Nazis during that period of time. So, you know, it's another 
way to, to, to think about the effects of the war in a larger sense. I'm glad we, uh, I mean, I had seen this movie a long time ago, but it, after watching like The Last Metro, kind of have a different appreciation for it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I also, uh, you know, had seen it a very long time ago. So uh, in 1951, the shortened version again uh, managed to make Boo. it to, to London, where Virginia Graham in The Spectator said, The Rules of the Game was the last film made in France by Jean Renoir, a film which he wrote and directed and which he plays a leading part. Though pictorially, it is very satisfying. The scenes of pheasant shooting on a crisp autumn day are beautiful, though they seem strangely inappropriate to a French film. Renoir has mixed high tragedy and low comedy to such an extent that one is bewildered. The group of aristocrats, most members of which are indulging in illicit love affairs that make them dismally unhappy, are constantly being interrupted by the slapstickery of those below stairs, whirls of valets and maids chasing each other through marble halls waving pistols. The author, Dalio, Gregor and Roland Toutain are effectively sad, bad, and mad as the mood takes them. And for all their charm and inconsequence, it is hard to hang on to their coattails. They're also cads. Yeah, they are. Maybe they have children so they could be dads. <laughs> this mm. is uh, some some good old rhyming here in this in this uh, the uh, pilot this review. Yeah, flew across the Atlantic. That was rad. I don't know if they would have used that term in 1951. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have watched this movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, she mentions the slapstickery here, and I, I could see how it would be jarring to go from one to the other, but I feel like it fits together, and maybe, you know, there's there it's choppier in that shortened version, but to me, it didn't feel too jarring to go from, like, the hunts and and some some sort of like serious romantic bits to the 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 wackiness of the chasing around the estate with the pistol or whatever. I say I've come for an evening of cinema and you have brought me to this house of slapstickery. How dare you, you brute? <laughs> I'm going to assume that's an accurate impression of that uh, <laughs> British film critic, because why wouldn't it be right? Well, well I, I mean, it, this is really one of the tougher kind of responses that we've had to consider when you were bringing these criticisms up because we saw a different movie than they did. Right. So right. like, there's no way I'm knocking that because I think like, you know, Hey, look who you're talking to. The guy who's always like, dude, why are these movies so long? Right. But in this one, like, I don't think 84, 85 minutes would have done this justice. Right. No, I, I agree. And, and you're right that it's tough to do that. And I wanted to get, you know, contemporary reviews as we always do, but it did seem slightly unfair to only talk about that. So I did grab one extra review. And this is from 1961 when the restored version was released in New York City. And Howard Thompson in the New York Times had a much more positive response. He said, the full version of Jean Renoir's study of the manners and mores of pre-war France opened yesterday and completely justifies its European reputation. Admirers of the director's work will not find the moving simplicity of his expression of a pacifist theme in Grand Illusion or the colorful decor of the river, but will discover instead a deeply personal statement of unusual richness and complexity. Renoir obviously set out to make a masterpiece, closely following the literary tradition of Beaumarchais, who also foreshadowed the fall of a decadent aristocracy on the eve of the French Revolution. 
For discerning audiences, the rules of the game affords a memorable experience. Yeah, uh, Bob Marche was an influence on this, correct? I'm sure he was, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Dave and I were talking earlier and he said, you know, this restored version is akin to the three-hour Jersey Girl cut from (laughs) Kevin Smith. It really, really uh, shows it in its, its full array of vastness and beauty and and just Kevin all Smith the multitudes josh an- anticipating mm-hmm. the 9-11 maybe no it was later than that i don't know uh, um well no they knew they were going to war here but you know they're talking to, i i watched the river which you know he made in india and i think one of the strengths of that is the kind of use of not just environment but like he'll before he starts a scene he'll like um just kind of keep the camera on some local. So you're getting to learn like local culture and local flavor. And like with this movie, I think, you know, he uses a single setting in a really, really unique way. And I don't know what they cut to get it to the 84 minute version, but honestly, I think you could have cut everything from before them arriving at the mansion and you could have all had it in one single setting. And that would have been enough to kind of propel this film. Yeah, I suppose. But I think there's some important character relationships that are established in those early scenes. And I do like the the opening scene where um, Andre the aviator arrives at the airfield and he's this French national hero for having flown across the Atlantic and achieved what Charles Lindbergh achieved. And he shows up and all these reporters are there and they interview him and they say, aren't you proud? And he's just like, No, I'm disappointed because I just did this for a woman and she isn't here. And I think right there, that gives you a a clear sense of like who these people are and what their priorities are and how entitled and self-involved they are. Well, I agree. But also he did do it for a woman and he did the thing. So, I mean, he crossed the Atlantic. When have you flown across the Atlantic? Um, I have not ever done that, but... um... (laughs) Yeah. So, so you need to meet a lady to inspire you, Josh. Yes. Um, inspire me to buy an airplane ticket to cross the Atlantic. <laughs> hey, that that's like, that counts as a way to do it. But what I'm saying is, I agree. I like that scene too. But I'm saying I think they could have gotten all those points across in a single setting. Yeah. No. Maybe so. And I I don't know if the, I don't think that's how it was cut in the in the shortened version. Like I think it does include shortened. Uh, aspects of those early scenes as well before they end up in the country's house. Right. It would not have made sense to just cut the first 20 minutes. I'm right. saying had it, you you could reconfigure it from a script standpoint. But anyway, right. you don't need to because it's a classic, Josh. Right. Jason's rewriting the rules of the game here. Um, so you you watched this before. I know you were very excited for us to talk about it. So when when had you seen this before? I saw it in college in uh, Sabrina Zanella Ferrazzi's film 501 class, which I had to fight to get into because I was only a sophomore and they wanted me to keep taking prerequisites, even though I had already finished them because of my AP credits. So I uh, got in and uh, she was like a classic, you know, like um, she almost looked like she was on Sprockets, the old Mike Myers. Uh, but she was, you know, like you could see her working in film restoration, that type of professor. And, um, yeah, I miss her, Josh. I miss oh, her a whole lot. I don't. A, oh, oh, okay. I thought that was I mean, a nice little moment, but yeah. yeah, no, she's married. Maybe in honor of, um, this film, I'll sleep with her. I, I, that was really not, I thought you were going to say something, uh, nice about uh, someone like a professor who taught you no, about film, but I, I liked her. I liked her as a professor, although I will say we did have a, 
like a, our own little film festival and she would never, you know, we would submit like movies that we made and um, she submitted one that she made and uh, like the, the class voted, she would say hands. And if more than half the hands in the class went up, then um, they would have to get shut off and her movie got shut off right away. And then Josh, I submitted a film that you and I made in high school, which was a love story between a dog, a cow, a blender and Janet Reno. And uh, the the audience liked it quite a bit. She kept saying hands, hands more often than not. And no one would raise their hand, but then she shut it anyway. So Zanella Ferrazzi and I still have some heat because I beat her and I beat THX 1138, the George Lucas movie in there. So she she endorsed the rules of the game, but not our weird music video. I didn't remember that Janet Reno was part of that. Jake, our friend Jake played Janet Reno in there. So, and, but, yeah, I, 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 do we have this on VHS somewhere still? This is I hope really so. Bringing back some memories. <laughs> I hope so. High quality um, filmmaking that I edited on two VCRs. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the real breakout star of that was my dog, Lucy. She yeah, we got some good acting. dog acting from the dog. I remember that. That was pretty Ooh, good. I want to see this. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's something. All right. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I, I think John Renoir would appreciate the, uh, you know, the the risks we took there. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. exactly what I was thinking as we were making it. <laughs> what would John mm-hmm. Renoir do here? He was like, "How do we, um, uh, you know, impart the spirit of the rules of the game into mm-hmm. this film?" Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I, I too saw this movie in college. I'm pretty sure that was when I last saw it in a, in a class on French film. I don't remember really anything about the professor of that. I don't have a roller coaster of a story there, but uh, like you did. But I, I remember really liking it in college. And um, I think this had been, you know, on my like 1939 top 10 list high up. And, and this time I was not as engaged with it. But I, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very well made film. So um, I was just maybe a little less uh, drawn into it this time for whatever reason, but um, but I do like it. I was glad to revisit it because I remembered basically nothing other than I think that I had liked it. But in terms of the details, nothing had remained. I, I remembered a good amount of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I know you love this film and I think, you know, more so than I do. So maybe it just had stuck with you more. But um, I was, you know, it was good to revisit because it felt new. So uh, Dave, had you seen this or any Renoir films before? I had not seen any of his films, uh, and I barely showed up to college, so I couldn't have watched it in any college classes. So. <laughs> what college did you go to? UNLV. Oh, yeah. Well, they give you uh, bonus points for not showing up there. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. Anything else about the background of this film you want to mention, Jason? Hey, Dave, do you know how um, you get a UNLV graduate off your doorstep? How? How? Pay him for the pizza and tell him thank you. We'll come back and talk about more of our general thoughts on the rules of the game. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season on the films of 1939. We're now talking about our foreign film pick, The Rules of the Game from Jean Renoir. And Jason, you were really looking forward to talking about this. So, And did it live up to your memories of it? It did, because, you know, that class I was... Referencing, I remember it took place so early in the morning, and uh, this is going to shock you. I didn't have good sleeping habits in college, so <laughs> I was always exhausted. I lived in Warren Towers, which was the second largest non-military housing facility in the country. 
uh, in the whole US. So there were always people up. There were always germs being spread, right? Like you'd go to sleep for four hours, go to class and then sleep through the whole afternoon. But like to wake up and watch a uh, black and white French movie from the 30s, whether it was eight o'clock or nine o'clock, I don't imagine it was as late as 10 o'clock, but you know, it's tough to get into that. But this one held me right from the beginning. I, I thought all those elements of like humor, absurdity, commentary, um, along with the technical mastery all worked. It like, it just captivated me. And I felt like it was even funnier this time. Um, I, I actually thought of Dave during this moment and we'll have to talk about the hunting sequence, but during the moment, like all these kind of aristocrats are talking and they're like, remember George, uh, he went on to hunt last year and he shot himself in the thigh and it killed him in 20 minutes. <laughs> Let's be careful. <laughs> just like, why why did you think of Dave in that moment? Because it's so dark and hilarious. It's the type of humor that I think Dave would like, but it's just like, they don't care. They don't care about anything but themselves. Every single character in here, perhaps maybe not Octave, played by Renoir, who did not deserve the hate for his uh, performance. I thought he gave a good performance, to be honest with you. Yeah, I uh, agree. And especially because it was a last minute thing that he had to step in when no one was available to take the role and was rewriting it again on the fly in order to make it suit him better versus what he had initially written it. I, I think so too. And I think in a way that that character is like the heart of this film because he seems to have more more of a heart than a lot of the other characters do. And he's he's this kind of melancholy guy. And he he himself is not really an aristocrat. He's just kind of like a hanger on here. And he's dependent on the generosity of these wealthy people in order for him to uh, like live really. So I, I, I agree. I think he does a good job with that kind of character. So I watched A Day in the Country, which he's also in. And um, yeah, I mean, he's he's a solid actor. I don't know why the hate is there, but I love the way he moves the camera. I mean, that's that's nothing that hasn't been um, noted before. But, you know, kind of these moving masters that I think we talked about in like Annie Hall, Woody Allen, you know, where you would start on like a room and go to one subject. And as that subject crosses another subject, you would follow the next subject. And he just moves the camera so well. And there's so um, so much intention with it. With it. Uh, Jean Bechelet was the director of photography for that one. So... Yeah, I just I just think like you could watch it with no volume to get those like kind of technical elements if you really wanted to. But it's just it's weird. It's funny. The main character who collects all these like dolls and uh, musical uh, instruments. It, it's just strange. I liked it all. Yeah, I wondered if those those like music boxes and like uh, automated little dancing toys or whatever were meant to be creepy. Because they sure are creepy. And yeah. it definitely adds to that sense of the sort of oddity of the rich, right? This is what this guy does with his money is he like seeks out these antiques and like restores them and, you know, makes a big deal of presenting his latest find to all his rich friends as they watch this this sort of music box clockwork thing go and these creepy little figures like awkwardly dancing or whatever. It's uh, it's definitely the kind of thing that could be in a horror movie in a slightly different variation. I think you're right. I, I saw that Renoir had said um, that that was the best film he ever filmed. And that performance was thought the top performance um, by the actor. Uh, oh, is this uh, Mar Marcel Dalio who plays yeah. 
the marquee there who is the one who hosts everyone. He is the the owner of this country estate and is uh, and is the collector of the weird music box things. Yeah, I mean, that whole sequence is strange because they're like all there for like a weekend getaway. And then they're like, well, we got to put on this show. <laughs> like what? Who, who for who? But then they have like this party and there's like 50 people in tuxedos and evening gowns watching like dance numbers and Octave is in a bear suit. And uh, then, of course, uh, Marcel does, you know, he presents his his shining achievement, which is this restored music box. It's just so strange. There's so many sequences like that where, you know, when they're first getting there or the poacher or, of course, the, the hunting sequence, which is very uh, jarring, like it's just all it's it just all works. I don't know. I don't know. I, I you know, I'm thinking of those criticisms. It's like, well, it's it's commentary, but it's slapstick and it's this and it's that. But it all works together for me. Yeah. I mean, I like I said, I, I agree in that sense that it didn't feel like it was choppy going from one thing to another where you have the slapstick of like that the performance that you're talking about or especially like Octave in the bear suit where there's a running bit that he can't get out of the bear suit and he keeps trying to ask people to help him get out of the bear suit but they're all busy with their own little dramas and they won't help him and right. you know and again the the game warden guy who is running around chasing uh Marceau the poacher who's then been hired as a domestic and is is uh, sort of uh, hooking up with the game warden's wife and he's chasing him around with a pistol, which is like very dangerous. You know, as he's, they got an active shooter here in this house, yeah, just as like, we learned <laughs> at the yeah. end of the film. <laughs> exactly. But they just treat it as this sort of like amusing little diversion or whatever. Um, and Renoir presents it as this, this slap bit of slapstick comedy, but yeah, the hunting sequence is very jarring and is sort of, horrifying in that i mean they they really did film the hunting and killing of all these animals they used local residents of that area as stand-ins for the actors and they shot these animals and i think it's meant to be upsetting even though of yes. course this was just a, a you know this was a thing that people did and it was perfectly acceptable to do but seeing it presented in such a stark way and especially the reaction of the characters of just being like, Oh, whatever. Um, right. I think is meant to be a bit, a bit unsettling. I think, I mean, what I had read Renoir even said, Renoir had never hunted in his life and wasn't even there. He had like his second unit shoot those sequences because he thinks hunting is so appalling. So he put it in for that commentary. And I think you're right because you don't hear him like, well, we have to go catch our dinner for tonight, right? It's all like, well, it's Sunday morning, chap. What else should we do but kill some pheasant, you know? So, but it is very disturbing because you're seeing these animals literally get shot, you know? And I don't I don't like that, Josh. I'm not a fan of that, so. Right, and, and that's fair. So, and yeah, obviously they're not shooting them for the sake of eating them. They shoot so many. There's no way that they're going to eat them all. And the, Hundreds, like, I think. The yeah. purpose of it is to just shoot as many as you possibly can because it's it's a game and you win by killing the most animals. Um, and, hey, and that's a, the rule. That is the rule of the mm. game. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing, of course, is that it's not really hunting in, I guess, the sense that we think of it now where people go out into the wilderness and they're they're seeking out prey to, 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 to shoot it. Like, 
No, these these aristocratic people, they stand in the, the blinds, these little like sort of stations or whatever, while the servants go into the woods and flush out the game so that it just pops right in front of them and they shoot it like it's a video game or something. Yeah, I don't really think going into the woods and shooting a deer that it doesn't know that it's going to be shot is any more impressive. So I mean, I it's a uh, <laughs> little more of an effort, right? It takes a bit more uh, planning and and knowledge, let's say. I, I, yeah, sure. I'm not saying there isn't a skill to it, but I don't think it's like a great achievement. And I think George Carlin had the best bit on, uh, uh, you know, people who call hunting a sport. If your opponent doesn't know that they're playing and you have a gun and they have nothing, how is it a sport? You know, right, so. right. But I'm just saying even that minimal amount of skill or uh, or planning or whatever that is required to do it that way is not going on here. Like everyone is just standing there in one place and firing at things that are directly in front of them. Josh, here's a um, quote from Renoir that I love because it's uh, it kind of sums it up like with the idea of like this kind of laser focus, but also this kind of uh, just absolute chaos. Uh, he was trying to make a precise description of the bourgeois of our age. Ambition when I made the film to illustrate this remark, we are dancing on a volcano. I mean, that sounds about right, <laughs> right? The yeah. idea here, we know the war is coming and even, even audiences in 1939 knew that it was coming and these people are either oblivious or they just don't care. They don't feel like anything like that will ever touch them. Um, right. And so they're far more concerned with their affairs and their, uh, you know, jealousies and whatever. And then when violence does come, as you say, they have that one reference to a, a fellow aristocrat who died in a hunting accident. And then, you know, if we want to talk about the ending of the movie because of all these ridiculous jealousies and misunderstandings, that game warden kills uh, Andre, the aviator, by accident just because he meant to kill somebody else. He thought Octave was having an affair with his wife, which was not the case. Or actually, it was the case, but not in that moment. If That's not what was happening. <laughs> and instead of being well, horrified- Well, Octave wasn't having an affair with his wife. He was, Oct yeah, with the, with the maid. Yes, he was. That's what, we, you, know, what you referred to in the, in the beginning of the film. No, when, you're wrong. Octave was in, that, in the greenhouse with- Nora's with the Nora Gregor character, but they the maid they gave her the the cloak. The right? No, exactly. I no that yes. What I'm saying is that earlier in the film, he was having an affair with the maid. Well, everyone was having an affair with the maid. Josh. Right? Exactly. But they explicitly <laughs> mention in that scene you were talking about where where Christine is asking her about her lovers. Octave is one of them. Uh, uh, what a time to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. My point though there is that. This guy has just murdered somebody. And instead of being horrified by that or calling the police or even firing him, he seems to have been rehired after having been fired thanks to the murder. And the Marquis just tells everyone, well, it was a terrible accident and uh, we'll mourn him tomorrow. Everyone go to bed. Good night. Yeah. And, and there, the there's cake and tea inside. Right. And yeah. the final comment is from the, the general, one of the, uh, the guest characters saying to someone else like, you know. That Marquis, he really has class. Like <laughs> that's that's the nice end of guy. the film, and 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 I think that is really indicative of you know if if we want to that that is the most scathing to me moment of like indictment of the decadence. A lot of it is just silly comedy, but that moment where they're like, yeah, somebody got murdered, 
but whatever. And isn't it classy that he swept that under the rug? That's that's the moment. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the the incident I mentioned with like how they don't care that George accidentally killed himself uh, right. hunting. But I also loved there's a scene, it's so unnecessary. Um, you know, you you when we think back of like Fargo, right? And uh, Frances McDormand, when she goes and she meets her old like high school friend and there's that scene you could totally cut from the movie, but it's so weird and strange and so lovely with color. There's a scene in there um, and I think this really added to it because you, like um, you're saying, you not only have this, you know, uh, high society, but you have all the servants in their sub stories, right? So they're all sitting at dinner and they're talking about, you know, whatever, uh, some other baron or aristocrat. And the chef comes in. He's like, I used to work for this man. And he tells this whole story that is so irrelevant to everything going on. I think the whole point was like that the guy didn't really pay him as well as he should. But like it just comes out of nowhere and there's no reason and no one really acknowledges it. And then he just goes back to making the rest of the dinner. And it's like you could easily cut that, but it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's it's definitely amusing to have all that stuff in there. I think I was not quite as taken with it as you are, but I mean... Having all that there is what makes the movie, right? I mean, you cut elements of that down and it's not going to work, per se. So, um, yeah, all those servants being able to gossip about their previous employers and and the fact that they have their ridiculous affairs just as much as the aristocrats. And I did like that that the the aristocrat characters are sort of rooting for the affairs of the servants, right? When Marceau is trying to run away from the game warden after having hooked up with his wife and he he runs into the marquee and he's like, oh, uh, monsieur, can you help me? And the marquee's like, yeah, shit, of course I can help you. Like, I want this to keep going. Like, this is a like our entertainment or whatever. So I did like that about it. Yeah, Dave, what did you think of the movie? Yeah, I, I thought it was really funny and weird, like you guys have been saying. And uh, what, one thing that I was thinking about was how modern this movie feels. I feel like it's the most modern feeling movie we've covered this season. And, you know, that's saying a lot considering how many years ago this is. But it just feels like the sensibilities of that strangeness, the sense of humor and like the sharpness of, you know, the satire of it all. Uh, it, it definitely feels modern. You know, it's. I was listening to your episode of Piecing It Together that you two did on your top 10 first time watches last year. And Josh, you mm-hmm. had, uh, to my delight, the king of comedy on there, the Scorsese movie, which I also saw in college the, for the first time. And I remember thinking like, this came out in 83. It was panned by critics and then uh, got reassessed over time. And it was like 30 years ahead of its time. And I kind of feel like those are akin to each other, this movie and that movie. Yeah, it does mm-hmm. feel ahead of its time. I do think, though, also, again, this goes back to the Hayes Code and just things that filmmakers in Hollywood maybe would have done, but can't do. Sure. And why yeah. you can watch a movie from 1932 that seems more modern than a movie from 1942 because of things that they weren't able to do thanks to the Hayes Code. But yeah, and, this definitely yeah. feels modern. I agree with that. And I think, like, you know, that's why when we did like our you know, some other seasons like 53, I was bored. Or when it, when we did 67, you could see like the French new wave was pretty, pretty far ahead of like where most American films were at that time. Right. Right. I want to give a shout out. I mean, we mentioned Nora Gregor and her performance that a lot of people don't care for. We mentioned Marcel Dalio as the marquee. Uh, I want to mention Paulette Dubost who plays Lisette the maid who uh, is just to me, like was the best performance in this film. She's so vibrant 
and fun. And she's the most likable character, I think, because on the one, you know, she's not an aristocrat, but she is uh, just as engaged. She's just as horny as all the aristocrats. She's the one who has all these lovers and is engaged in all these affairs and is married to this guy, but doesn't really seem to put much stock in being married to him and is happy to have an affair with whoever shows up. And I, I just loved her performance. I thought she makes that character so likable and uh, so charming. And that to me was like the character to focus on while I was watching this film. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I thought, I really thought Renoir was um, as Octave was, um, you know, the character to get behind as well. He was my favorite. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like I was saying before, I mean, I think he's presented as the most layered and the most sympathetic. And of course it's a, this kind of tragic unrequited love that he has for Christine. And at the end of the movie, he realizes that he could never really be with her and he sends Andre off to be with her, of course, sending Andre to his death and thus saving Octave, saving his own life. But it's still this, this sort of tragedy that he can never have love. I mean, is it that he, I feel like that spoke more to him as a character than more about the circumstances around him. Like he just, you know, was kind of like, he never felt that like he was good enough for uh, the, the high society class and the people he was with. And you could tell like, there were those issues of whatever self-image, self-confidence, and it kind of felt like he didn't feel like he deserved to have love. Right. I think that's true, but it's also because of the class differences. I mean, what happens is that he's ready to run off with Christine, and Lisette, the maid, tells him, like, what are you doing? Like, you don't have anything. Like, what is she accustomed to? What can you possibly provide for her? And he, I think, realizes, even though maybe you want to give Christine the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, she'd be happy if they were in love or whatever, but she is used to that. She does come from this aristocratic background. And he realizes, like, in the moment, maybe they declare their love. Christine also is very fickle. Like, 10 minutes earlier, she has declared her love to Andre. Yeah, that's a little strange. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, it's strange that, that um, you know, we're talking about that. And Nora Gregor, the actress, you know, she, like we said, she was basically akin to a duchess in Austria, and then they fled to France. And then they had to flee France, uh, where they lived in Argentina, and they left, led a very uh, modest lifestyle. So it's interesting that she played this woman, and now she was kind of uh, ended up living both ends of that spectrum. Right. I mean, I think part of the, the rewriting of the character once she was cast was maybe to reflect some of her actual background. But uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of Octave, I think it's both. I think it's that he maybe has this low self-esteem and doesn't feel like he deserves love or deserves someone like Christine. But also the way that that society is set up is is going to keep him from that, even if he went. For sure. It. It's like a caste system. Almost, yeah, so. it is indeed. So uh, any other aspects of this film that you wanted to highlight or things that you liked about it? I mean, Josh, this is a classic in every way, technically. Um, uh, Jean Pratt, the, friend, the film director, said the film's soundtrack was uh, of a perfection never equaled by any French film. And obviously, I thought with that, the idea of like kind of like the dialogue and like just kind of there's a soundscape going all the time. And it, it does, in a way, remind you of Altman. And Robert Altman said, the rules of the game taught me the rules of the game. Did he say it in that way? Sure did. Well, I had to present it uh, to get some some really good dramatic effect there, yeah, Josh. You so you know, so um, but yeah, no, I I think I'm ready to rate this thing out of uh, five weird, <laughs> crazy music boxes. <laughs> yeah, why not? 
out of five music boxes. How would you rate this? I get, it gets four for me. Uh, great movie. Yeah. I give it three and a half. Um, I mean, it is a great movie and I certainly would recommend people watch it. I think, like I said, for whatever reason, I wasn't quite as engaged with it this time, but it is a deserved classic and uh, it's uh, one to watch. So Dave, how would you rate this? Uh, I went three and a half. It's just all those killed animals that uh, brought me down from that's four. Fair. Right? So. Yeah, I know that's it. Because Jason, I remember when we talked about Stagecoach, you downgraded it because of the the animals that were killed during that filming. But uh, this one doesn't get a downgrade for the animals. Well, I that? think I did. I think I did. I uh, That one, I think I did. Um, and I think I would probably would have given this four and a half without those. Okay. So. Fair enough. Yeah. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of the rules of the game. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game. And legacy-wise, we've really talked about this, but um, the restoration of it and its status as like one of the greatest films ever made is the major legacy of it, really. Um, as Jason was describing, in 1956, it was restored back to almost the original cut Renoir did approve it. It was missing, I think he said, one scene that had been part of his original cut. And that is really what has led to this greater appreciation. It has been on the sight and sound list every time since they first made that list in 1952. And as you but, said, Jason, it, yeah. <laughs> but this was the first year that, uh, this last year was the first year that it was not in the top 10. So what's going on with these critics nowadays, Josh? I mean, it's, it's mm. only now regarded as the 13th greatest movie of all time. Like, I think it's still pretty good. <laughs> Nine behind Tokyo Story, Josh. Jason. 12 behind Jean Dielman, Josh. Come Jason's on. Jason's crusade against Tokyo Story continues. I love it. Jason Jason rewatched Tokyo Story just to be sure that he really disliked it. That is dedication to disliking I bumped it up on my. I bumped it up on my second viewing to two and a half stars. So, yeah. So hey, wow. Dave. Nice. Josh can tell you I'm on this uh, very uh, misguided project to watch every film that's on the side sound list. And it's not a uh, project that I plan to uh, finish like this year. It's probably like a four year project, but it, it is always tempting like at night when I'm sitting there like, Oh, what should I watch tonight? What's next on sight and sound list? You know? And it's just like, but then you just no. become a, a, a dingus, Josh, you got to get a good variety. But uh, speaking of great movies, Josh, the restoration, as you know, was dedicated to the memory of my former boss, Andre Bazan of Calle de Cinema. Yeah. Jason, somehow a key member of Calle de Cinema <laughs> in the 1950s. I'm amazed <laughs> at how you've accomplished that. Well, Josh, that was a heyday of journalism. So you should just enjoy it because as the entire field that you've dedicated your life to continues to careen off the cliff yeah. as we speak, oh, let's yeah. just look back at those times. Yeah, that's good. So um, <laughs> even though the response to this film wasn't that positive initially, Renoir was still this major world filmmaker. And because of the war, he left France after 1939. This was his last French film, the last film of his initial French period. He went to Hollywood after this and made a bunch of films in America in the 1940s, uh, I, including The River, Jason, which I know you watched recently. And uh, I've seen another film of his from that period called The Woman on the Beach, 
which is an interesting, although another one that was kind of compromised and edited down, but it's an interesting kind of melodrama romance thing. So um, that was his period in America, but never really achieved the heights, I don't think, of what he had done in France. Well, so The River was 52, I want to say. And I, I don't even think that, I think I was maybe post-America where he was like working in Britain and like doing co-productions with different countries. But that was his last, I think that was his last English language. English language film. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, I haven't seen any of like the Hollywood movies, but I'd be interested because again, we're talking about these these Hayes Code era films. And I mean, like a filmmaker like Renoir, like, I mean, even like A Day in the Country, there's so much... Um, kind of under uh, underpinning sexuality to it. So um, I would be interested in watching some of those. Did you like that movie? I mean, I liked it, but I didn't love it. And it's definitely one thing that you can tell that part of the clashes that he had with the studio and things that were cut were related to sexuality. And it involves an extramarital affair. And there's, you know, certain things you just couldn't do related to that with the Hayes Code. And so it's not surprising that he might have butted heads with with you know the censors in Hollywood during that period and I don't know if that happened on every Hollywood film that he made but certainly it did on this one um because as you say he had this freedom in France in the 20s and 30s to depict sexual relations much more freely it's just so crazy to me man like, yeah uh, you know if we, if we don't talk about sex no one will want to have right. it right yeah we'll pretend it doesn't exist so dave you watched an early renoir film for this as well right la bedu man i did yeah which i believe came out the year before this yeah. but um i liked it just as much as this one it's very different um almost noir style but uh also like kind of just about like a real shitty woman that ruins a guy's life. And it's, uh, it, it was fun. It was like a real guy's guy movie. Yeah, I I, I would like to see that. I mean, I, I've seen, like I said, The Woman on the Beach and I've seen Grand Illusion, which is the other most highly acclaimed Renoir film, but a very I saw it a very long time ago and I would have liked to watch more Renoir this week and uh, my time management skills were not up to getting to that. A Day in the Country is really interesting because he had shot like, I mean, it's a 40 minute movie basically because that's what he was able to shoot before I think he had to, you know, flee the country right. or whatever. But for whatever reason, if it was that or for whatever other reason, he was never able to finish it. So what you're watching is like a half completed, really cool project that works as a full thing. But you're also wondering, like, what would this have turned into? Right. And I guess he never returned to that. Um he did return to France uh, in 1952 and made more films there. His final film called The Little Theater of Jean Renoir was released in 1970. Uh, in 1975, he won an honorary Oscar. Um, and I don't know, we should say someone on Letterboxd, I think uh, I like referred to him as the original Nepo baby, because uh, of course he is <laughs> the son of the famous painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir. I mean, that's a little unfair. He's not. I mean, like, they're saying it in a joking manner. I don't think they're trying to discount his talent. Yeah, I guess. I don't know, man. I mean, he didn't. He didn't get jobs in movies because his dad was a painter. No, but I mean, his dad was famous, which I'm sure doesn't hurt. No, it doesn't hurt. But I mean, I, I, he stood on his own two feet there. I, yeah, I'm not saying that he didn't. You know, just like many people like that that we have talked about or will talk about. Uh, over here at Go for Jason. On Letterboxd, I don't think I'd agree with that. Okay, fair enough. 
Also, I'm sure there were Nepo babies long before that. Probably so, yes. But I mean, you know, in the in the in the sense that we're talking about it now, which is always within like the arts and within the film industry in particular, you know, they're uh, they're you know ones in in theater or whatever in vaudeville or something before this probably, but we don't really talk about. I that. guess in a way, couldn't you say like every king or queen who grew <laughs> up or prince is a, or princess is a, is a Nepo baby? There oh, is, yeah. yeah, true. You mentioned Nora Gregor and her her kind of sad uh, later years. She she only was appeared in one other movie after this and uh, died at age forty seven while living in exile with her uh, former aristocrat husband, Austrian husband. She was only uh, forty seven, so kind of a kind of a sad end there. Yeah, it is. Um, Paulette Dubost, who you had mentioned, was in over 250 movies and lived to 100, Josh. Yeah, she has credits in French film and TV all the way through 2005. That's wild, man. Wow. So, yeah. And uh, Dave was talking about The Grand Illusion. Obviously, Renoir, one of these directors who loves working with actors repeatedly. Marcel Dalio, the Marquis, was in Grand Illusion. Uh, also, I mean, this is just so crazy because I pulled this quote where they said German Nazi army in occupied France used posters of Dalio's face as a representative of, of a quote unquote typical Jew. He fled to America where he was in movies like Casablanca. He never achieved the level of fame that he did in France, but all of the other members of Dalio's family died in Nazi concentration camps. Oof. Yeah, that's, that's horrible. Terrible. Yeah. Um, and you know, he probably was able to get away just cause he was this well-known film star, but, uh, yeah, he had a, you know, a, a decent Hollywood career. Gentlemen prefer blondes, a movie that we've talked about here. He was, he was also in, and after having a small role in Casablanca, he had a major role in, uh, which I was not aware of the short-lived Casablanca TV series from 1955. Mm. And he worked in film and TV all the way until 1982. As per tradition here on Awesome Movie Year, Josh, give us a few bars of the theme song of the Casablanca TV series. <laughs> I did not look uh, uh, any further into that, but maybe if we do an episode on Casablanca someday, I'll check out the Casablanca TV show. Oh, oh Casablanca, nice. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, this is a huge cast. The one other actor that I wanted to mention here, which I thought was fascinating, is uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson who just plays one of the, the minor servant roles here. But he is an incredibly renowned photographer and painter, a pioneer of street photography. And he's in this film because he was studying cinematography and filmmaking with Renoir, who insisted that he had to take a part as an actor in order to experience being on both sides of the camera. So uh, I just thought that was an interesting little uh, small aspect here. That's cool. Who did he play, Josh? He plays one, I don't even, they, he doesn't even have a name, his character. He just plays like one of the servants um, and, you know, maybe has a couple lines or something. But, you know, not a major part, but just for him to have experience being in the film and being directed and delivering a line or whatever, I think. This, you know, you research this movie and it's so crazy because like we just got through like, well, it's 2024 now because, you know, the strikes last year, like. So all the, the the release schedule is screwed up. And then you read like stuff like this. Renoir originally wanted to release the film in June because the potential war would make a post-summer release impossible. Yeah. <laughs> but he was nine and a half weeks over schedule when he wrapped. 
Right. I mean, there is a lot about uh, the war disrupting, you know, releases of these films. And I mean, in America, where, of course, uh, films continue to be released, um, it's a bit like, you know, when we remember like movies that were released right around 9-11 or whatever that got buried and, you know, movies that got released in September 39 or whatever, when Hitler invaded Poland and the war began, were overshadowed, perhaps, by what was going on in the world. Um, I really, I, I, you know, I found a lot of quotes from Renoir because I, I do think it's so amazing that like they knew the war was coming. They made a movie about like it, with that impetus, knowing that this was a background in society. And yet there's no reference to the war other than a title card. And I think it like adds such weight to the movie and Renoir, uh, you know, when we were talking about how people hated this movie at first, he said he depicted pleasant, sympathetic characters, but showed them in a society in the process of disintegration so that they were defeated at the onset. The audience recognized this. The truth is that they recognize themselves. People who commit suicide do not care to do it in front of witnesses. Yeah, I mean, mm. I can see that. Although, again, I feel like what he's saying, they, they are pleasant. The characters are mostly likable. They're not as nearly as reprehensible as we might expect in a sort of satire of the decadent rich that we would have now. Um, it's almost like, yeah, just like a, a blind spot or an ignorance, like just like they're, like they're in a bubble, right? right? So like they don't really have, like they can succeed in that world. But if you had put them as, uh, you know, bakers or shoe shiners, they wouldn't have any uh, idea of what to do. Yeah. So uh, anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film, Jason? The rules of the game taught me that they taught Robert Altman the rules of the game. Thank you. So that is the rules of the game. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out online and on social media. We're at awesomemovieyear.com. Uh, awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Abortion. Um, I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. Find me at Gopher Jason on the Letterboxd. And Jason, you're always you're always making fun of our website, but we had some really nice comments submitted on our website. No, I never make fun of the website. I make fun of the Twitter. Well, right, but you also have uh, you know mocked the mention of our website and uh, you know its uh, usefulness. But uh, we appreciate the people coming. Well, that's just because when comments. I look on it, like the graphics look stretched. It looks like Dave made the website with clip art from the '90s. Oh man, now you're just. Throwing Dave under the bus. No, continue. Web to, design is not my strong suit. Guys. Continue to go to our website and give us feedback. Yeah, shout out that listener it. who gave us that awesome feedback. Yeah, from, Albert uh, from Vienna, Austria was uh, very complimentary. We very much appreciate uh, all of those comments. Um, maybe he will have some uh, thoughts on the Nora Gregor character as this Austrian uh, dissident. Maybe he will. So uh, you can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at Signalbleed on, on Twitter or X or abortion, as Jason <laughs> called it for some reason. And uh, also at Signalbleed on Blue Sky. There, and on there's Box. Josh defending Twitter X again. I am not defending it. I'm just saying you you are trying to tout our presence there by using this horrible... Uh, imagery that you're giving people for it. It's the worst, bro. It does kind of suck, but there, there is still a lot of good stuff, uh, a lot of good accounts, like Awesome Movie Year, that you can connect to mm. on there. Uh, and if you're on Letterboxd 
and you watch one of the movies that we talk about, tag your review awesome movie year. We would love to know what you think of any of the movies that we cover here. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Josh, it's my pick. And uh, guess what I did for this season, Josh? You picked a movie you wanted us to talk about? That I've never seen. We're going to try the 1953 experiment all over again. This time with Howard Hawks' Only Angels Have Wings. Tune in next time for Only Angels Have Wings. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.